We are in our series. It's called Journey. We've been going through the entirety of the New Testament. We're going to try to do something today that we have never done before in the history of the Woodbury Church of Christ. I'm not sure it's ever been done before in a church ever. We have been covering a book of the Bible each week. There have been some weeks where we have tried, be just because of the timing, we've had to cover two books of the Bible. This week, we are going to cover three books of the Bible. I know that's a lot, but if you buckle up, we can make it happen. I think it'll be worth your time. Trick question. Who wrote the books Colossians, Philemon, First and Second Thessalonians, and uh, Philippians? Who wrote those books? I told you it was a trick question. You can't just say Paul because that's the obvious answer. Uh, it's a trick question. Yes, it was Paul, but Paul and? Oh, you guys are so smart. Yes, if you read the introduction to each of those letters, it says, I, Paul, and then it says something like, along with Timothy. In fact, there's a wide variety of the New Testament that says it was helped by these other characters that we don't ever give them credit to. Paul had a team. May I know maybe Timothy was just the guy writing it down while Paul was dictating it. Maybe Timothy offered some editorial advice saying, Paul, you need to soften this or sharpen this. Maybe you need to use this word. Maybe Timothy was like a thesaurus. Maybe Timothy edited Paul for grammar. Maybe Paul was so smart he didn't pay attention to grammar mistakes. I don't know what that would be like, but maybe that was his issue. But we don't often think about Paul's team. We don't often think about the guys that would have been around Paul, supporting him, helping him out. And these letters that we're looking at today, that we're going to overview today, are talking about about the team, right? So, you know, Simon needed Garfunkel. Holmes needed Watson. These guys were great in their own rights, but they, there was something about having that other person that just really pushed it over the top. And I think Timothy and Titus are guys like that. If you have a working knowledge of the books, First and Second Timothy and Titus, I think for most of us, there are two associations. When you think about those books, those of you that have grown up around churches, there's largely two associations with Timothy and Titus, those books. Um, the first one would be, does anybody I mean, there's, there's no wrong answers here, except there are, well, there are, but there's, don't feel bad about giving me a wrong answer. What would be one thing that we would associate with the books Timothy and Titus? Elders. elders. Every time we need to learn about elders and how elders work and what elders aren't supposed to be doing, what they are supposed to be doing, who would be qualified to be an elder, we go to these books. It's very, very important to that idea of what it means to be a church team and the leadership in a team. The other thing, and I'm going to save anybody from having to answer this, but the other thing that may be associated, particularly with 1 Timothy, is a reference in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, that have caused... No endless amount of controversy because it talks about women and how they interact in the church. And it's just, we've talked about that a few years ago. We went through a whole study about that. Uh, but it's a big deal. And sometimes when people think about 1 Timothy, they really just think about that one verse. This week, when I was preparing this sermon, I happened to be at home, and I was like, I'm going to look up a couple verses. The Bible that I have at home, I leave one at church, I have one at home. The Bible that I have at home was my grandfather's old Bible. And I don't know how old it was, I don't know how long he had it, I don't know, but when he passed, it was given to me. So I have my grandfather's old Bible. There was one section of Scripture highlighted in the entirety of his Bible. Does anybody have any guesses as to what it was? <laughs> 1 
1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. And I don't know, I want to ask him, he's not around to ask, but I would like to ask him, did you like this verse? Did you highlight it so grandma would see it? Were you trying to understand it? Like, well, I have no idea why he fixated on that one verse or if he just ran out of time and that was the last Bible and that was the first verse he got to while he was highlighting it. I'd love to ask him someday. And by the way, let me just say this. I have some thoughts to share about that passage and I would love to share them with you if you're interested. If you're going to sit there, if you happen to have looked that passage up and you're sitting there thinking, man, that really bothers me. I want someone to talk to me about that. I want someone to uh, at least help me wrap my mind around it. I'd love to do that. Come talk to me later. But the, the focus of this message isn't going to be 1 Timothy uh, 2, 11 through 15. How many of you have ever had to call 911? How many of you ever had to call 911 when the emergency personnel would not be able to get there quickly enough that something needed to be done and you had the technician or the dispatcher on the phone walking you through the process? Anybody have to do that? I worked at a Golden Corral in Ottumwa, Iowa, and there was a gentleman who had a heart attack at the buffet. I don't know if those two things were related, but he did. And this was pre-cell phone, this was corded phone on the wall, and by virtue of being the closest person in proximity to the corded phone, I was tasked with the job of calling 911. I call them, and I'm supposed to be relaying questions to the persons, the people that are attending. They're about 30 feet across the room. I don't know what happened to this guy. They took him off in an ambulance eventually, so that's not part of the story. He might have been fine for all I know. Maybe he runs marathons now. I don't know. But whatever it was in this moment, I was having to relay questions from the dispatcher, from the medical personnel, to the people helping this guy out. Things like, is he conscious? Is his passageway blocked? Is he breathing? Do you know how to do CPR? And I felt so unqualified to be helping because I was sort of just relaying information in an emergency. Emergency. I think that picture is a very good mental image to have in your mind as you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. You are reading from someone who's an expert, relaying information to someone else who is on site, who is trying to help what's going on. Those passages about elders and deacons, those passages about women, they are in service to a greater picture being portrayed in these books. Paul, so to speak, is on the phone with Timothy and Titus relaying crucial information for this church. There's a spiritual emergency. Paul's relaying instructions to his team on site. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes, I urged you. Now, I suspect that Paul was actually writing to the church to whom he's talking, but he's sort of talking through Timothy. Have you ever had that happen where someone's sort of talking to you, but they're actually talking to the room? You know what I mean? I think Paul was doing that on Timothy's behalf because some of the stuff he's going to say is so charged, he wants them to hear it from himself through Timothy. But he says, I urge you, and I highlighted that word urged because most of the time it's translated begged. So Paul's saying, I begged you to stay. I urged you. It's a strong uh, emphasis. I urged you to stay there. Well, I went to Macedonia. Uh, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. 
there was a theological doctrinal emergency in Ephesus and Paul had left Timothy there to handle it and if I were Timothy I would have been like thanks a lot because it's like Paul said hey Timothy tell those guys they're a thousand percent wrong see ya you know like wait hang on <laughs> you're the you're the head guy why don't you stay here and do that but he knew that Timothy had it in him and that's why you read if you read through these books some great quotes where it says things like first Timothy 1:18, fight the battle well because it's a fight there's some false teaching happening in this church and the health of the church is at stake fight the battle well or this is one we love to use at youth rallies even though Timothy was probably in his 30s first Timothy 412 don't let anyone look down on you because you're young don't let it happen you have got the authority to deal with this problem and you can see Paul offering this charge to Timothy this important charge or second Timothy 2 1 be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus that is in Christ and then second Timothy 412 4-2. these are all over the place but he just says things like preach <laughs> rebuke you got to rebuke some folks I rarely, and maybe I should think about this more often, but I rarely think about getting up here on stage and putting on a microphone and having notes and having an overhead in terms of I'm going to get up here and I'm going to let the church have it. I'm going to rebuke them. It's just not really my personality, not the way I operate. And I can imagine it was difficult for Timothy to find that in himself to tell this church what was up. And you see why Paul was saying, you've got to fight, Timothy. This is really important. I recently uh, got an email from a former member who has stopped attending, um, and I, know I hate to even mention that people ever stop attending, but it happens. There's people who, for a variety of reasons, and it could be all over the spectrum, either we're not what they need, our vibes aren't right. In this case, that's almost literally what he said. Your vibes aren't right. Like, I don't know how to fix that. I'll go to the vibeologist and get my vibes corrected. But he said it, it, he just, it wasn't right for him. And uh, he emailed me a couple months ago, and he said, I really need your help. Now, my personality is like, yes, he, he was in a dire predicament. He was reaching out to someone he knew would do the right thing. And he emailed me, the, the little complex that I have inside. He was like, yes, he emailed me. And so I responded immediately. Absolutely. I will help you. What do you need? You know, here I am to the rescue. Like I really can solve his problems. And he emailed back and he, he, he weaved a tale of tragedy and woe in his life. He had a niece who was currently in the hospital facing a heart procedure. <gasps> That's tragic. That's so sad. I'm sure she must be relatively young. And it's so sad that this relatively young person would be in the hospital needing some sort of heart procedure. And not only that, she had lost both parents to COVID. What? That is unbelievably tragic. I, I mean, they're going to make a movie about this person. That's so awful and terrible. Not only that, it was her birthday, and she was in the hospital, and nobody could visit her. And, and this uncle wanted to purchase a gift for her, but he said, I'm out of town. I'm not able to do it. Patrick, can you come to the rescue? And I said, dun, 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 sure I can. I can help. I can do what you need. And I was hoping maybe this is a way to get him back and get him back connected to the church. I was really excited about this opportunity. And so I said, yes, I will help. Whatever you need, I'm in. Heartstrings are plucked. Compassion is activated. I'm on my way to help. What do you need? And then he said, and this should have been my first clue. He said, I need you to go to a store and purchase some Apple gift cards. 
Okay, well, that's fine, you know, weird, but whatever. I mean, you need Apple gift cards. I can do that. Sure, sure. And uh, But he didn't tell me how much, so I emailed him back. Like, how, how much? They come in different increments. Do you need, you know, $50, $100, $200? What do you need? Well, $300 of Apple iTunes gift cards. Oh, okay, well, that's a lot, but I know, I know you'll pay me back. No big deal. For about 15 minutes, I was like, okay, I'm going to help this guy out. I'm going to do this. But something wasn't quite right. You know, something's just a little off. And I decided to Google, like, is there such a thing as like a scam? That whole email has been sent to millions of people. There's no girl in the hospital who lost both of her parents to COVID and whose birthday it is. That didn't happen. I was so mad that they had, you know, made me feel compassion for this person that didn't exist just to exploit me for money. I texted this guy who I had his cell phone number and it wasn't him. He had no idea what I was talking about. He didn't come to me in, in his time of need. It was somebody had robbed him of his email address and he started sending people different emails about this. It was, a, it was a total scam. It was a total con. And it was so annoying because scams like that prey on people's goodness. People want to do the right thing, and bad guys know that, and so they try to use that desire to get people to do something that benefits them. And it's so ugly, and it's so awful, and it's so frustrating. That exact scenario is what is playing out in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. There are people who have come into the church and they are scamming the local congregation mostly for their own benefit. And Paul says someone has to stand up and put a stop to it. Someone has to deal with this. They're dealing with religious scammers, and, you know, it's not just a few hundred dollars. There's something much bigger at stake. In fact, I have a, a, a screen here of all the verses. I went through uh, all three of these books and just tried to pull out every section that talked about the consequences Paul was trying to avoid. So he talks about things like, hey, listen, there are people who have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. I don't know specifically what that means, but that doesn't sound great. doesn't sound like they're doing awesome. There are people who have turned away for simply 550 to follow Satan. I don't think that's what we're going for as a church. I mean, this is bad. And Paul's saying, yeah, it's bad. The consequences are dire. There's people who have wandered from the faith, but departed from the faith. This teaching spreads like gangrene. They're falling into a trap of the devil. Do you see how dire and intense this is? And Paul's saying, Timothy, Titus, you got to get in there and you got to do something about it. You got to help out here because there is a serious problem and things are getting bad. In the Middle Ages, it was, I don't know, relatively common to burn heretics at the stake. Now, I, I feel like I should have to preface that I am not in support of burning heretics at the stake. But if you read uh, Paul's writing in these letters, you understand, whoa, there's some serious consequences to this false teaching. Something bad is happening. Now, this is an artistic rendering of Joan of Arc being burned at the stake. I tried to find a picture that didn't feel gruesome that parents wouldn't email me about putting up a church. But this is before it happened. This is her being burned for heresy. In this case, the official charge was she was wearing male clothing because she was masquerading as a soldier. She's 19 years old. Uh, and she was burned at the 
stake for, for heresy. And I did a little research about like what was the thought process, what was the theological thought process that allowed these Christians to feel like it was okay to execute someone for false doctrine. And here's what they thought. They thought, hey, we believe, and I'm not saying this is right or I agree with it or you should agree with it, but we believe we can execute someone for taking a life then it follows that we should execute someone for taking a spiritual life. I can see the logic. That's not what Paul prescribes in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. He prescribes rebuke. But I understand the logic. They're saying there is a lot more at stake than we realize. Because this is true. False beliefs have real consequences. You disagree with someone, whether it's theological or not, maybe it's political, but you think that their wrong belief about politics or social life has some sort of real-world consequence that needs to be realigned. And that's why people get so mad at each other and, and call each other names and fight because they're saying that your belief have bad real-life consequences. Listen, it's possible to hold such false ideas about faith that they undermine our relationship with God and damage the faith of others. I actually think we minimize this a lot because we're like, ah, God will work it all out. And Paul's saying, listen, there are serious problems in this church. Timothy, Titus, you need to fight to fix it because people's faith is at stake. It's possible to hold such false ideas about faith that it undermines our relationship with God and damages the faith of others. This is a fun Mother's Day sermon, isn't it? This is fun, like, just a relaxing Mother's Day. I'm so glad I brought my mom today, right? Sometimes people, because of sin, just sort of drift away from faith, and it's kind of like floating, you know, on a current, and they just kind of pick up their feet, and they just float downstream. But sometimes, because of falsehood, people are ripped away from faith, like in a riptide, and they're dragged out to destruction. It's, it's likely, not to, not to make this too heavy, but it's likely you know someone that has walked away from their faith because of a wrong idea. They have left Christianity or they've, they've become part of some unhealthy church because of a wrong idea. It's likely you know somebody. As I was reflecting on these ideas this week, I was thinking about a person that I knew that I had a lot of interactions with that was kind and earnest and sincere and thoughtful and was going to be a light and draw a lot of people into a connection with Jesus because of who they were. And they fell under the influence of an awful person who robbed them of that. And now not only are they not kind and earnest in drawing people to Jesus, they're angry. And listen, this is important. They are confidently confused. And they're angry about it. And it's just such a tragedy. It's such a tragedy. And you can see why Paul's saying, listen, we have got to get on top of this. All right, Patrick. All right, you've scared us enough. What are you suggesting? You're talking about false doctrine. What's the, what's the plan? Across the street, right here in our parking lot, and it used to be at the edge of our parking lot, the city or the county, I guess, has installed a tornado siren. 
and the tornado siren goes off once a month on the first Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. And I forget every single month. And every single month I'm like, you know, start, oh yeah, okay, that's what it is. You can't do anything else where that siren's going off. It's too close. You can't, I can't work. I can't think. I can't have a phone conversation. I can't talk to a coworker. We just have to stop for a couple minutes and wait for that thing to wind down because it's so disruptive that you just can't, you can't do anything else. It's a big deal. Contrast to that, we have a smoke alarm at home that goes off every time I make toast. <laughs> it is very sensitive. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You could be thinking about making toast and it's like starts to go off and you're just like, you got to wave a rag at it to get it to stop going off. And it's the most frustrating thing to the point that we, we sort of ignore it because it goes off all the time. I think an accusation of false teaching can be like a tornado siren. It needs to be used when there is a tornado and there is real significant danger. But if that thing is going off all the time, people start to tune out. If we start calling everything false doctrine, false teaching, which some churches do every time somebody disagrees with the preacher, well, that's false teaching, then people either get so scared and assume everybody is wrong but them, or they start to tune that out. They start to ignore it. So, so what do we do? Because my approach, right or wrong, my approach at Woodbury has been to try to define ourselves more by what we're for than what we're against. You know, I feel like that's healthy to say, I don't need to stand up here and say, well, that church down the road is that, and that guy that you maybe bump into at a coffee shop in town, and he's a false teacher, and that person over there. I don't know that that's all that helpful, but if we try to define ourselves by what we are for, then maybe we will notice when things are not right and when things seem off and when the email feels like it might be a scammer. Maybe we'll start to notice those things. And so one of the things I wanted to do uh, re relatively quick the, quickly this morning is there may be times where we are confronted with false teaching. I mean, enough of us read a lot of books and listen to podcasts to watch other preachers. There's going to be times where something like, I don't know about that. What is that? What is going on there? So I wanted to ask the question, how do we identify false teaching and teachers? How do we do that? I want to equip you with at least some tools to identify false teaching and false teachers. So if you want, we'll, we'll be relatively quick, but if you want, I actually spent a lot of time typing this up, um, but there is a little document in the back, and I'm going to go through it here in just a second, but that just is eight questions that we should ask. It doesn't mean that if the answer to one of these questions is no, that that means that person is false, that person is wrong. It just is a diagnostic tool to help us understand Understand, are the things we ta are, are taking in, are, are they right? And here's how we should think about them. Because false teachers don't come up to you and be like, hey, by the way, I'm a false teacher, waving a false teacher flag. They don't do that. They come up to you saying, this is real, this is true, nobody else knows this but me, and you got to get in on the ground floor. That's what false teachers do. This is important. The first question you should ask is, what is the actual foundation of this teaching? Is it, are they actually teaching Bible? Or is this a quote from a book or an author? Or is this actual scripture? And really, because most of the time, a false teacher is going to have scripture veneer. You should look up the references that they're listing behind their statements. You should look those up. You would be surprised at how often that verse of scripture has nothing to do with what is being claimed. You should look that up. 
I gave you some references in this, in this guide to look up. Secondly, what behavior or what outcomes does this teaching encourage? Right? Healthy Bible teaching should result in genuine Christ-likeness. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Is this enabling or encouraging behaviors that are contrary to what God would want in your life? It may sound right, but what's the outcome? Thirdly, does this belief move us closer to Jesus or further away from Jesus? I mean, Jesus is the central figure in everything we think or believe. Does this idea draw us closer to an accurate understanding of who he is and being like him? Or is it just sort of distant from him and maybe pushes us even further away from him or who he is? And it's focused on something that's not Jesus. Does this teacher encourage grace or judgmentalism? This is a big one. Do they encourage grace or judgmentalism? Do they encourage you to walk around shooting everybody down because everybody's wrong but you and them? Or do they encourage like, hey, we've all been wrong. We've all made mistakes. We all want to be unified. We want to help people. Do they encourage grace or judgmentalism? In fact, you'll, you'll even hear people say, hey, just the fact that they disagree with me proves I'm right. Why would they disagree unless I'm right? And you're like, that is very convoluted, but okay. Fifth thing, what is the character of the person or people teaching this? Not are they perfect, of course not, but are they earnest and sincere? Do they really truly seem to be like they themselves are pursuing Christ-likeness? What's the character? Uh, spiritual belief should encourage godliness. Are they gentle or are they proud? We've definitely been in an era where we have stopped caring about the character of people and we've cared more about what they say. And I think that's wrong. We have to care about who they are because these teachings develop their character. And if they're not good people, then we should be suspect of their teaching. It may not be good teaching. Similarly, is this teacher okay being wrong? How do they handle being wrong? How do they handle disagreement? You've probably been in situations where when you begin to challenge someone, that person got angry. You know what that outrage is? That's a manipulative tool to keep you from disagreeing. How do they handle being wrong? How do they handle disagreement? How do they handle challenge? Does this teaching and teacher, do they encourage loving people or do they encourage exploiting or using people? What's the end result? Because you, we know what God cares about. He cares about us loving him and loving others. The worst kinds of false teaching exploit people for personal gain. And Jesus called them in Matthew 7, ravenous wolves. I like that description because I think it captures the, the reality. And then lastly, does this teaching seem in keeping with the revealed character of God? Is this consistent with who God has presented himself to be throughout the scope of Scripture? I mean, discussion is great. It is great. We, we actually here at the church, we have a weekly call with our elders and staff every week, every Thursday at noon. We have a weekly call. And if you are going to be a fly on the wall of that call, there would be times where you'd be like, oh, can, can they talk about that? Like, that, I mean, our, it's going to devolve into an argument. And our elders, it's always healthy. It's always harmonious. Do they always agree? Absolutely not. And that's a good thing. But it's good, honest, vigorous, loving discussion. You would be very proud of the, of the content and the tenor of those conversations. But, man, we need to be careful for teaching that creeps in to the church and creeps into our lives. Because we're not just being formed by this one congregation here in a suburb of the Twin Cities. We live in a society where we're being formed by global Christianity. And we have to pay attention to what we are taking in. Now... As we wrap up, 
when we're talking about all this false teaching, I, I was thinking this week, I was thinking, okay, well, if the problem is false teaching, then the solution or the goal should be true teaching, right? If the problem is falsehood, then the goal should be truth. But that's not what Paul says in these letters. That's not the goal. Of course, truth is a good thing, but that's not his ultimate goal. In fact, Paul over and over and over again uses a specific word to describe here is the goal, sound. Over again in this text. It's so interesting because you're like, well, he would just teach the truth. But you all know this. Just teaching the truth isn't enough. You've got to teach the truth in love because we're not just trying to, you know, promote truth. We're trying to promote, well, soundness. And you're like, oh, soundness, that's kind of a weird word to choose. Well, we would probably translate it with the term health. Paul doesn't just want truth. He wants health. He wants you to be healthy. He wants us to be healthy. He wants our church to be healthy. Can I say this is going to be self-serving and you're going to be like, okay, Patrick, you're employed by this church. But let me say this anyway, because maybe it'll have some impact on you. I have been a part of quite a few churches in my short life. I think I can say in all objectivity that this church is the healthiest church I have ever been a part of. Now, you're like, okay, well, of course you got to say that because they, you know, we pay your paycheck. By the way, can I tell you a funny little story? Liam was asking me the other day, uh, he's like, Dad, how do you get paid? And I said, well, uh, you know, the, the church pays me. And he's like, what do you mean the church pays you? Well, you know, like when people give their tithes and offerings, you know, a portion of that goes to, to you know, pay for you to eat a Happy Meal at McDonald's. <laughs> and he said, he's sitting there thinking about it a while, and he's like, Oh, so it's a scam. <laughs> no, man. No, it's not a scam. I, I hope. I hope it's not a scam. But I actually think it's important for me to be able to say, as, as I'm a member of the Woodbury Church of Christ, and as a member, I have been able to see behind the curtain, so to speak, to see the elders interact with one another, to see the ministry leaders and see what they do, to see how they talk, to see how their lives are. I've been able to see all that. And I can say, having seen all that, I still would claim that this is the healthiest church that I have ever been a part of. Now, this is important. Are we the perfectest church? <laughs> no. No, not at all. Are we the coolest church? Okay, yes, I guess we're the coolest. All right. No, of course not. There's way cooler churches, right? Are you listening to the most charismatic and effective speaker that you are going to hear? No. Of course not. You can, you can leave today and get a podcast of a thousand better preachers than me. None, none of those things make us a healthy church. We're a healthy church because I believe we are truly, earnestly, deeply desiring to focus on Jesus Christ and bring anyone and everyone into a relationship with him. Have you ever had issues at church here? Probably. Maybe you've had something happen or somebody wasn't kind, but I'll tell you what, this is, I was trying to explain this to somebody uh, after the first service, and I thought this would be a better illustration. You know when you're buying your first house, 
and you can't afford all the cool things that you want you had on your list you're like I want a pool and I want you know I want uh, a big yard and I want a fence and I want you know all those things and you can't you realize oh I can't afford any of those things and you look for a house and it's a little bit run down and the paint's peeling and the yard is brown and there's you know it's just not the greatest thing and what you do is you adjust your expectations and instead of looking for perfection you start looking for potential can this house be, does it have the potential to be what I know it could be? Can it serve the needs of, of me and my family? So are we perfect? Is the paint sometimes peeling in the spiritual corners of our lives? Sure, yes. But we have, what do the realtors say? We have good bones. We're a healthy church, and that's a wonderful thing. If you're looking for flashy, we're not going to be that. This is the flashiest we get is these lights right here. That's about as flashy as we get. That's it, you know? That's flashy for us. Uh, am I going to be the best speaker? Absolutely not. I listen to myself after I preach because we put our sermons online for a little podcast. And every week, and I'm like, these poor people having to listen to me every week. It's terrible. It's so bad. I sound awful. I sound like Mickey Mouse, you know, on helium. <laughs> No, we're not the best church ever, but we want to be sound. We want to be healthy. I've been in unhealthy churches. Some of you have too. They don't, they don't feel safe. You go to church and it's tense. There's suspicion and there's backbiting and there's gossip. I want to wrap up this morning by reading 1 Timothy 1.3 again. I hope you've had a chance to read 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus because they're all so good. Remember that the context is false teaching. But I want to wrap up with this passage as we close this morning because this is where Paul says this is what we're going for. It's not just about, and it's interesting that Paul doesn't ever specify. There's two things he specifies in false teaching. He doesn't give a list of what the false teaching is. He says, avoid all that stuff that doesn't focus on Christ. There, you know what the two things are that he says? Anybody, any Gold Star Bible students in here? He says the two things that he lists are false teachers that forbid marriage and forbid eating certain foods, which I don't think is our problem. Our brand of false teaching that we're going to run into is not the same as theirs. But this is what he says is the goal. I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations. By the way, that's another fun thing that happens in the unhealthy churches. It's just endless. Rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Verse 5, this is good. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We're not going to be the coolest church. <laughs> Sorry to say, I know if that's what you're setting your hopes on. We're not going to have the most charismatic preacher. We're not going to have the most emotional worship. It's good, but we're not going to have, it's not going to be the best worship you've ever experienced in your life. I hate to say that right before our praise team comes up on stage, right? We're not always going to be the best, but let's be healthy. Let's be sound. Let's fight to focus on Christ. We're not perfect but healthy, single-minded, devoted, and sincere, and all about love.